Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. That is me. That's Carrie Haskell, and this is Downtown, the podcast. Big round number edition today. It's number 150. How about that? Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 150 of these, Kerry. That doesn't seem possible to me. The time has absolutely flown. Yeah, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of conversations uh, that we've made our way through here. This week, just one, though, as uh, we will sometimes do when we go into uh, greater depth and uh, further length than usual. And so we do that this week with journalist and author Mark Harris. We had a chance to talk with about his Fantastic biography. Can't say enough good things about it. Mike Nichols, A Life, which is uh, as good a an entertainment show business biography or biography of any kind that you'll ever read. Incredible amount of research that went into it to tell the story of a, a unique person on the art scene from his days doing comedy like no one had seen before with Elaine May in the late 50s and early 60s onto his successes as both a stage and a film director, and Mike Nichols kept doing it right up until the very end of his life at age 83, and it's all chronicled in this wonderful new book, Mike Nichols, A Life, our conversation with author Mark Harris. There's so much to uh, to take in, in in this wonderful book about Mike Nichols, and, and there's a mythology about him, much of it self-created. I, I think of the line from The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Was it difficult for you to separate the two? Yeah, absolutely. It was because of course my, my goal was to try to print the fact, not the legend while acknowledging the fact that there is a legend around him because you know, the story of the making of the graduate and, and how he rose <clears throat> out of um, uh, a, a, an early career as a performer with Elaine May to have this extraordinary uh, pivot to being a director has a lot of kind of myth attached to it now. So I really tried to um, pull the truth apart from from the fabrication. I'm, I'm curious about this, some of the logistics here. Uh, your research is so extensive. I'm, I'm curious how you organized everything. Did you do it thematically? Did you put together a timeline? Um, I put together a timeline. That is always the way I work. Um, I, I just create this document, which eventually becomes unwieldy and huge that includes everything I read, everything I see, every person I talk to, every quote I find. And I try to put it in um, some chronological order because I can't understand for myself why things happen until I understand when they happen. And and I, I have found that the deeper you dig into the when, the more some of the why becomes apparent. You start understanding like, oh, he was in this mental place because this thing had just happened and that's why he made this strange decision. So yeah, I always work with a timeline. Did it add any pressure or, or was it a level of comfort because you did know him personally? Um, I, <laughs> I don't think it added comfort. Um, I, I think it was, it was complicated because I, I had known Mike for the last, I guess, um, 12 to 14 years of his life. And so I did, wonder for the years that I was researching the book, what am I going to do when I get to the chapter where there are things I know not 
because I researched them, but because I was there. I got to know Mike when my husband, Tony Kushner, and he worked together on the HBO adaptation of Angels in America. And so right around 2000, 2001, I sort of come into the story. Um, uh, But I found that while I was doing the research and while I was um, interviewing people, my journalistic instinct sort of took over and and the part of me that knew him was was left aside he was just really someone i was trying to figure out and of course i I realized that since this was a 35 chapter book ultimately and i only come in at at chapter 32 that (laughs) what i didn't know was much much greater than what i did know well as you point out he was uh, the outsider who became the ultimate insider but he never seemed to lose the need to prove himself, how much of that was because of a, a keen awareness of his own flaws from the, the physical issues to his by seemingly a nearly lifelong struggle controlling his anger? I, I mean, I think that, uh, I think Mike had a lot to deal with, you know, as, as you mentioned, um, he, you know, he, he started life really as an outsider. He, um, he and his family escaped Berlin just before World War II and resettled in New York. Um, Mike had a bad reaction to a vaccine when he was four and um, as a result lost all his hair and was was bald as a child. Um, and so when you start out in a new country and, and a kind of unforgiving place, not sounding like anyone else and not looking like anyone else, and then sliding into poverty after the death of his father, which happened when Mike was just 12 or 13, um, you know, I think what what that left him with was not just a desire to prove himself, but but an understanding of how fragile uh, and transient safety and security could be. Um, I don't think that. Um, I, I think Mike did get angry uh, on on sets occasionally, um, but what sort of impresses me is that he realized very early on that that was. Um, not only a problem, but the wrong thing to do. And he spent a lot of his life really trying to become a better person mm. than than he felt he had been early in his career. Obviously, you can't tell the story of Mike Nichols without talking about Elaine May. And I, I love uh, Mike Nichols' description. He said that we were both seductive, both on the defensive. Right. That Mike and Elaine met each other when they were uh, about 20 years old. So, so... Uh, he's talking about a really specific time in the 1950s in Chicago when he was kind of out in the world for the first time on his own and had created this this kind of scary external persona. They were both known as someone who could completely cut anyone down just with a a well-turned sentence. And um, at the same time, they met each other and had this instant deep, deep bond uh, where they realized that they they sort of needed each other in their lives and, and that they were kind of meant to know each other and ultimately meant to work together. And um, that led to their performing partnership, which lasted probably seven or eight years. And then it broke up in a kind of acrimonious way. And there was a brief rift, but they stayed in each other's lives as friends uh, and, and often as collaborators um, for Mike's entire life that, you know, he, he knew her for more than 60 years. And, and it was Elaine May who convinced him that every scene was one of only three things. 
Right. She said every every scene, um, because their whole specialty was doing these five or ten minute um, things that began as improvs but turned into their best-loved comedy routines, she said every scene uh, should be either a seduction, a negotiation, or a fight, and when in doubt, seduce. And I, I think from that, um, Mike learned not only a lot about how to be a performer, but a lot about telling stories and a lot about pacing and a lot about uh, shaping a dramatic or comedic moment that probably served him really well all the way through his life as a director. And their rise to fame was so swift and incredible. And, and I think he, he mentions uh, along the way in the book that that's something you couldn't possibly be prepared for and that that affected him through him in a sense, maybe more than anything else that happened in his professional career. Yeah, I think it's hard for people now in 2021 to understand a world in which you literally could become famous overnight just by uh, one well-timed, very effective appearance on a TV show. But that is what happened to uh, Nichols and May. They had been rising steadily. You know, they've come to New York. They they became a very successful club act uh, at a time when, you know, nightclub culture was still a thing. Uh, but then in early 1958, they, they appeared on a variety sketch show called Omnibus. It was a two-hour special, and they just had two sketches. And they really were famous instantly. I mean, we were in a world with only uh, uh, three major networks back then. And so tens of millions of people saw them and suddenly everybody um, wanted to know who they were and where they had come from. And as Elaine May said, we thought nobody would get us. And it turned out that everybody got us. We're talking with Mark Harris about his book, Mike Nichols, A Life. Um, Elaine May grew tired of essentially repeating lines. She wanted every performance to be something uh, brand new. Mike Nichols was more comfortable with the way things were going, but eventually they decided to, to part ways professionally, and Mike got the opportunity to become a director. And as you point out, it became apparent to him almost immediately that this was his calling. Yeah, it was very interesting to, to learn that Mike didn't really like himself all that much as the person he became when he was performing. The the high the high point of, of Nichols and May's performing career together was that they did a Broadway show. And the show was a huge success. It was one of those, you know, Hamilton-like shows that everybody had to see. And it ran for about eight months. And and during that time, it really became clear that Elaine was not happy doing the same material verbatim night after night after night. It was never what either of them had bargained for, but he was more comfortable with it than she was. So their partnership ended. They, they tried another situation where she wrote a play and he acted in it. And that really um, drove a wedge between them. And that play never even came to New York. And then he sort of backed into directing almost because he couldn't figure out what else to do. And so he was offered a chance to try to direct uh, a Neil Simon play. And Neil Simon was not yet in any way famous. Um, and and Mike did say that the, the second he walked into the rehearsal room, he thought, oh, this is what I'm meant to do because being the director is like being the father. Um, and that's what I want to be, which is a sort of extraordinary thing to feel when you're only 31 or 32 years old. And uh, 
recently I've seen uh, some commentary on, on social media from people who pick out one moment uh, in the book, and it's the scene working on Barefoot in the Park with Elizabeth Ashley when she's kind of lost and not quite sure what to do, and he takes her face in his hands and says, essentially, just be the girl, be the girl that, that everyone wants. And, and, and people have, have kind of hammered that as a critique of Nichols, but to me they miss the rest of that chapter of the book where she goes on to explain that she never would have survived that run, and she'd had a breakdown along the way, and if it hadn't been for Mike Nichols' kindness, she might have never made it through. Yeah, well, that's very true. And, and what's slightly frustrating about that that story is that it's it's really only the first half of the story. I mean, Mike did say, you know, be the girl. You're the you're the girl every man wants. Uh, you're you're the girl every girl wants to be. And what Elizabeth Ashley said uh, quite rightly was, I can't play that. That's not a character. Right. Um, and and I think it's to Mike's huge credit because of course this was 1963 that he listened to her and he realized that that was not a sufficient piece of direction and so he started working with her more specifically and giving her the kind of guidance that he became famous for giving actors and it was through that work that she developed what was widely said to be a fantastic performance so so um mike does not fit the mold of someone who was sort of dismissive or uh, patronizing to uh, women. That story starts out one way, but it ends in a very different place. Absolutely. And his directorial style was uh, built around storytelling, helping actors discover the truth. Uh, I think he referred to it as, or maybe it was you, as a self-revelation as anecdote. Right. Yes. I mean, that's what that's what I said. He loved to tell stories about himself um, as sometimes as a way of loosening up an actor, sometimes as a way of telling a story about a feeling that would point them toward the feeling that he wanted them to have in the scene. He really loved using analogy um, sometimes to draw them out and help them find a thing in their own life that they could uh, connect to. But um you know, one of the things he said was that that he thought uh, the the job of a director was a kind of two pronged thing. That every director had to uh, think in terms of uh, staging a scene: what is it really like when this happens? What is it like? And the other thing a director always has to keep in mind is um, what happens next. So. The first of those things is, in a way, how do you make it real? And the second thing is, how do you keep the story going? And and those two things were really his hallmark as a director. One of the things he did to make it real, and I was fascinated reading about this as an actor, was his use of stage business, giving actors things to do and getting away from what was really a very presentational style of acting where actors would almost face the audience to nail those punchlines. But he had his actors working, doing things. And, and sometimes that meant uh, not even looking at each other while saying their lines. And that added so much to that naturalness. Right. I mean, there's, there's a famous thing uh, about the odd couple, which is um, the Neil Simon play that he uh, directed in its, its first appearance on Broadway. And the odd couple begins for like the first 35 or 40 minutes with a poker game on stage. And that is kind of a director's nightmare because first of all, you never want to have to put people at a round table because it means somebody's back is going to be to the audience. Second, you never want people just sitting there, not moving. And so 
Mike kind of took that scene apart line by line and beat by beat. And, and it, it wasn't just business that he came up with because to him, it wasn't business. It was who are these people and how are they going to manifest who they are by what they do, by how they eat a sandwich, by how they reach across someone else to get chips or, or to get some food, by how they turn to each other, by, by how they lean back. I mean, he, he really wanted to show you um, character through action as, as much as through the lines. And so that scene, as he ended up staging, it was considered a kind of masterpiece of, of staging and really was one of the things that, that built his already growing reputation as a director who could make anything come alive on stage. Well, and he had that great early success with Barefoot in the Park and then for his first film, ends up taking on the most acclaimed play of the decade in uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And, and so many remarkable stories around the making of that film. I love the story about him uh, getting together with Jack Warner and trying to convince him to shoot the film in black and white. Right. Not only <clears throat> trying to convince him, but succeeding. I mean, there was still a little bit of black and white being used in 1965, which is when this film was shot. But really, everyone was moving toward color um, because they, you know, they, they, they didn't want... Black and white by then was becoming this thing that was associated with old movies and with television. And um, Mike really felt the movie had to be black and white because, first of all, at the time, as odd as it sounds, black and white was the hallmark of serious adult drama. Mm. But also, they had Elizabeth Taylor, who was only 32 years old and very beautiful, playing this kind of alcoholic, overweight wreck of a 48-year-old woman. And he felt that the makeup in color would not hold up, that he could do it convincingly in black and white, but he couldn't do it in color. So it was really important, and Jack Warner, the head of Warner Brothers, opposed him. And uh, Nichols's attitude, and this is sort of amazing because it was his first movie, and he was not even you know thirty five years old yet. Was I don't have to do this? I'll go home. I'll go back to New York. I have a very nice career directing theater, and I'll just keep doing that. And that kind of you know, uh, as he himself said, snottiness and indifference really in that very first movie helped him get his way. And that opportunity in many ways, a product of, I guess what he would ascribe to luck, but the fact that he had become friends with Richard Burton when Camelot was uh, in the theater, I think <clears throat> at the majestic next door to where Nichols and May were doing their show. He ended up, uh, I think going uh, to Italy and squiring around Elizabeth Taylor while Burton was shooting. And so they already had that established relationship and it was because Taylor and Burton wanted him uh, that the studio was convinced to give him that opportunity. Yeah, it was a kind of funny multi-step dance where Nichols got to know Burton. Through Burton, he got to know Taylor. Then Taylor, but not Burton, was signed for Virginia Woolf. Mike used his relationship with Elizabeth Taylor to get that directing job, and Warners gave him the directing job because the studio thought, if we give it to him, maybe Burton, who really likes him, will come along. And they knew that, you know, as great as it was having Elizabeth Taylor, if they had Taylor and Burton together in a story about a crazy marriage, um, they, they would have not just a movie, but a real event. And in a way, that ended up uh, with one unintended side effect, which is it really empowered Mike in a way that um, 
no first time director would ordinarily experience because Warner Brothers knew that they couldn't fire him or discipline him as long as Taylor and Burton, who they desperately needed, had his back. And they really did have his back. And then he had to call on another friend, Jacqueline Kennedy, to try and make sure that uh, the Legion of Decency didn't shoot down the film and refuse to give it its stamp of approval. Right. I mean, this is this is the last moment in movie history when American movies faced anything like a code of censorship. The, the movie had to pass the production code, which was the secular uh, film industry office that governed the content of movies. But also, uh, if, if a movie didn't get the approval of what was then called the National Catholic Office of Motion Pictures, but really everyone knew as the Legion of Decency, there were a lot of theaters where it couldn't play. There were a lot of cities where it couldn't play. And um, Virginia Woolf was going to be a really tough call because there was language in that movie. Remember, this is before the rating system existed. There was language in that movie that had never been heard in a studio movie before. And so Nichols convinced Warner Brothers, uh, which had fired him off of the, they kicked him out of the editing room by then, um, uh, to let him back in the editing room by saying that he would get Jacqueline Kennedy to go sit there as all the Monsignors and members of the Catholic board watched the movie. And when the movie was over, she would say very audibly, oh, what a wonderful movie. <laughs> Jack would have loved it. And um, it, Nichols felt that that would have been, you know, an unmistakable signal to the board to approve the movie. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Journalist Mark Harris and much more to come in our conversation about his new book, Mike Nichols, A Life. After this, from our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And more of our conversation with Mark Harris about his new book, Mike Nichols, A Life. You had written extensively about The Graduate in your wonderful book, Pictures at a Revolution. Was that a help or a hindrance when you came to that part of the Mike Nichols story? <laughs> it was a huge hindrance. It was, um, th there were a couple of parts of the book I was, I was really dreading. And one, which we talked about earlier, was, um, you know, as I said, Angels in America, which is where I come in. But the other was The Graduate, because I thought I had done a pretty definitive um, job of telling that story in my first book. And of course, I thought, you know, I, I can't assume that anybody has read that book um, and I need to, you know, come at the story fresh uh, and tell it as if I hadn't told it before and maybe even find some new ways to tell it. And um, I, I was I was worried about that part when I was uh, writing, partly because the, there really was no more um, 
research that I could do on it. I, I had talked to everyone who was around. I had done everything I could. Um, so I ended up just reading through my my notes, particularly the old notes about um, Mike and his work on it, and telling it slightly more from the perspective of this is where he was coming from in his career, and this is where he was heading. And and um, I, I I hope I, I think people seem to like the graduate chapter. So so I'm very relieved to know that. Oh, absolutely. And one of the great takeaways from it is that this movie that so many point to as the start of uh, really creating the voice of a new generation. That's not what Mike Nichols saw in The Graduate at all. It was to him a, a, a sex comedy about a young guy and an older woman. Th- that is what he thought when he started it, and and I think then he realized that that it could be a little bit more than that. But he certainly did not see it as um, a generation gap movie. I mean, he thought there was something very contemporary in it, in that he he thought the story of Benjamin was really um, the story of a very very privileged young man who who came home to California and found himself absolutely drowning in the materialism um, and the sort of capitalist ethos of his parents and and so tried to escape into this kind of nihilistic affair with with Mrs. Robinson and then finally figured out what he wanted. Um, that's what he thought the story was about, but he didn't realize that uh, it, it, that Benjamin was going to be taken as a kind of youth hero and um, and neither did Dustin Hoffman, by the way, who was 30 when he played the part of, of this 21 or 22-year-old guy. They were very, very surprised when they went to the first preview of the movie in New York and and saw the audience from uh, the balcony stand up and start to cheer and yell when Benjamin uh, breaks up the wedding at the end and runs away with Elaine. That's when uh, they knew that they, they might have something that was bigger than... Um, they thought it was going to be because they didn't have huge expectations for the graduate. After all, it wasn't even made by a studio. It was made by an independent company. Um, It starred someone who no one had ever heard of. And uh, by the end of its run, it was the third highest grossing movie uh, in U S history up to that point. We talked to Bill Daniels uh, on the show a couple of years ago. And he was telling us that uh, the producers weren't sure he was old enough to play Benjamin's father, and then uh, it didn't go quite the way he expected. His part ended up being much smaller than he originally envisioned it. Yeah, I don't think any of the actors really necessarily knew that that it was um, it was going to work the way it did. I mean, uh, Bill Daniels, I know, was very disappointed that a couple of his big scenes were cut out. The Graduate is not um, a long movie. You know, it's only about an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, Nichols really pared it down to absolutely what was needed. Um, and and I think um, some of the actors were kind of shocked by its tone, were kind of shocked by its style. It didn't look like other comedies of the mid 1960s um but you know it didn't take them long to to realize the graduate opened at the very end of um 1967 uh it took off at the box office instantly it made a whole bunch of 10 best lists it got a raft of oscar nominations including best picture uh uh, nominations for all three of the uh, main actors, and then um, for Nichols, who won his his Oscar for Best Directing for that movie. So much of Mike Nichols' work explored what I think we could call the failings of traditional masculinity. Uh, in some ways, even The Odd Couple, uh, Streamers, certainly The Graduate. 
carnal knowledge. Was he also in that work trying to answer questions about himself? I think uh, Mike would probably say that he was trying to answer questions about himself, but he would also say uh, and said frequently that you don't always know why you're making a movie. Um, you, sometimes you just know that you want to make it or you feel you need to make it. I mean, one thing he said, and I think he said this uh, about The Graduate, is the movie you're making, or no, I'm sorry, he said it about Silkwood, uh, of all things, but he said the movie you're making always turns out to be about you um, <laughs> on some level, but that you might not understand the specific way it's about you for years uh, after it comes out. Um, and that was certainly true uh, for The Graduate. He didn't. He, he said he didn't really have a sense that uh, Benjamin was him, that Benjamin was the outsider in a world of happy, cheerful Americans. He, he didn't even really understand why he had cast someone like Dustin Hoffman instead of, say, Robert Redford, who really wanted that part and who, like, as unlikely as it feels now for Robert Redford to be in The Graduate, if you read the novel that The Graduate is based on, the way the character is described is much closer to Redford than it is to Dustin Hoffman. He's a track star. He goes and fights forest fires. Um, so it was Nichols's instinct to cast Hoffman, but he didn't know why. And I think one of the remarkable things about Mike Nichols as a director is he understood that you didn't always have to know why you were making the creative decisions you were making. Sometimes you just had to let your uh, subconscious rule. Even long before the birdcage, he seemed very comfortable with presenting gay characters, not as caricatures, generally in an honest fashion. Where did that sensibility come from? Um, I think it was probably uh, an outsider sensibility. I mean, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, growing up in New York and then in the Chicago theater scene and then in the New York theater scene, um, uh, Mike would have been exposed to gay people uh, as colleagues, as friends, as acquaintances. Um, they were just part of the fabric of of the the life of someone who lived the the way he lived. And uh, there was no, you know, uh, Mike was not um, defensive or 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 uh, anxious about his own masculinity. He was very comfortable with with who he was. And, and so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really the same in the same way that Mike was much more interested in women as, as collaborators and colleagues and much more willing to listen to them than uh, a lot of um, his contemporaries were. He was, he was comfortable with gay characters. He was interested in gay characters. He, he, um, you know, his position about gay people sort of evolved over time as, as everyone's, position of his generation did but but they show up a lot and they show up a lot in his stage work too um you know streamers a really famous uh production he did in 1977 has uh a homosexual subplot um and and theme that was quite unusual then um so you know he was just he was at ease with with things that a lot of um other directors were not at ease with Everybody in life tends to learn more from failure than success. And he certainly found a way to pivot after failures. As you did your research, was there uh, maybe one film or one stage production that didn't go as well as planned that, that you found especially illuminating in how it affected his artistic approach going forward? 
Yeah, there were there were actually many of them. I mean, I spend a, a good deal of time um, on in the book on on Mike's failures because I think they're a really important means of understanding him. But probably the the, the most important one I think was his his first one, which was um, that after the graduate, he directed the movie version of Catch Twenty Two, and you know this was the first time when his success as a movie director was so widely known that it affected the way he was treated. He, he was given a much, much bigger budget. The sky was the limit in terms of how elaborate he wanted the staging to be. He had this huge cast at his command, everyone from Alan Arkin in the lead role to Orson Welles, who was there for two weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, the movie... Uh, took an incredibly long time to make. And I think there are some really interesting things about it. It's very much worth seeing. But three months before it was scheduled to open, MASH opened. Right. And and the minute uh, Mike Nichols saw that movie, he realized not only um, uh, was his movie doomed, but that MASH was really more the kind of movie he, he wished he had made than Catch-22 was. And... And out of that failure, because the movie, um, you know, didn't get any Oscar nominations and uh, did lose a good deal of money and wasn't very well reviewed. Um, the What Mike learned from that was he said, when you have a big failure like that, the first thing he learned was, I'll survive. I mean, he was he had been waiting and waiting for his first failure and now he unmistakably had it. But the second thing was, he said, I think the thing I need to do is go do something sp- all that I don't think has very good commercial prospects, but just do it because I really love it. And um, that turned out to be uh, Carnal Knowledge, which uh, ended up being a big critical hit and and quite a commercial success too. So that was a lesson that um, that Mike, you know, reapplied uh, over and over again. It wasn't a lesson that would prevent you from having a failure, but it was a great coping strategy for once you did have a failure and and many many times throughout the rest of his career you can see that some of his most interesting work comes right after something has gone really wrong in his career in light of that is there one film in particular that you wish people would give a second viewing to um yeah i i would like people to take another look at um a movie that really got kicked around critically when it opened, which was Heartburn, um, his comedy with Meryl Streep that's based on the breakup of the marriage of uh, Nora Ephron and Carl Bernstein. Um, you know, the, that film had a troubled production, um, and when it was reviewed, it was reviewed very much in the context of the fact that the leading man of the movie, Mandy Patinkin, had been replaced by Jack Nicholson, and everyone was trying to figure out how much of the movie was true and how much wasn't, and and there was a lot of complaining that the movie was one-sidedness and how dare you tell the story of a breakup of a marriage uh, because of an unfaithful husband only from the wife's perspective. And I think if you look at that movie now, um, it's full of all of the things that made Mike Nichols a wonderful director. There's incredible attention to... Um, what we talked about earlier, which is, you know, expressing uh, 
who a character is through little idiosyncratic choices and and behaviors and and brief lines and small physical actions. Um, it's really observant about a whole social class of people. It's very funny. It's impeccably cast. Every performance in it is really sharp. And um, I think that's a movie that deserves a better reputation than it's had over the years. And I'm really happy that a lot of people are are taking another look at it now um, because they've read about it in the book. Yeah, and as you point out in the book, a, a stunning, from our perspective, level of misogyny in those reviews back then. Right. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable to see um, critic after critic, and some of these were very good critics, but they all sort of said the same thing, which was, well, there must have been a reason that this character cheated on her. She must have done something wrong. Um, or, well, it doesn't seem like much of a marriage. She's not very attractive. I mean, it was completely um, uh, this perspective that if a marriage breaks up because of a husband's infidelity, it must be on some level uh, the wife's fault. And it's really important for a movie to address that and acknowledge it. So the, those reviews would never be written today the same way. And um, it, to see the movie out from under that kind of um, perspective, uh, I mean, I've been surprised at the number of people who've said to me, um, oh, I, you know, I've never seen Harbour and I've always heard it was terrible. Um, that kind of, that thing really stuck to it and it's taken a long time to get it unstuck. He had such respect for writers. Uh, did you witness that personally when he directed Angels in America? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, Mike loved writers the same way he loved actors um, and film editors and theater production designers. He loved people who could do really well something that he couldn't do. What he was was a great director, um, but that did not make him competitive with writers. So there's this long history of people from Neil Simon to uh, Tony on Angels in America, but also Tom Stoppard, um, uh, Nora Ephron, you know, he, people he really enjoyed collaborating with him, and and he knew um, he knew how to bring out the the best in them too. I mean, doing Angels in America wasn't simply a matter of sort of retyping the play script; it had to be broken up into six one hour installments, right. and um, certain things had to be eliminated. And and uh, Mike was a great, I think, advisory force to Tony on that production and, and really is the person who convinced Tony that that he he could write a script. I found the final chapters of the book and of Mike Nichols' life in many ways uh, heroic. He had conquered a lot of demons, battled uh, addiction, and seemed to have finally found joy in his personal life. And, and even with those physical struggles, was always looking forward to that next project right until the very end. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you feel that way. I, I find them sort of heroic, too. There's something very moving to me about um, a man who has taken his entire life to figure out, decade after decade, how to become his best self. And and he's, he's, he's finally in a place um, where he, he's very much at peace with his life. He's conquered his demons. He's getting to do the kind of work um, he wants to do. And 
And at the same time, he realizes that time is short and time is precious and that his his physical stamina and, and his ability to do the kind of vigorous work that he wants to do is, you know, in his 70s and early 80s, um, seeping away a little bit. So, so in a way, the end of the book is um, both, I think, the story of a, a very well-fulfilled life and the story of uh, a race against time. The book was so powerful and so moving, and, and for me personally, nowhere more so than in the epilogue and at, at the, the gathering to celebrate his life a year later that they called The Last Rat Fuck. Uh, <laughs> and you quote an actress, and this was the part where I, I just was so moved. An actress said, how did he make all of us feel like we were the special one? Yeah, I think that's as beautiful a one-sentence summary of of his technique as a director as anyone has offered. I mean, because it's it it, it speaks to the way Mike conducted himself in his personal life, um, where he really, as someone said, you know, having him uh, as a friend was like the sun shining on you. But also, it is very much about the way he worked as a director, which is that it wasn't just about um, saying the right thing to the leading man or the leading lady. Uh, it, it was about uh, saying the right thing to someone who has uh, three lines uh, in a movie or in a play um, just to make that person understand their place in in the system and 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 feel special for, for that minute. Uh, he knew how important that was, and, and he really knew how to do it. Boy, and there's no better example I can think of in the book than uh, when they're rehearsing Waiting for Godot, and he has the characters, the actors, switch characters. Right. Uh, Steve Martin and Robin Williams were the, the stars of Waiting for Godot and, and, you know, really very, very, very famous at, at that point. And um, uh, the two other parts were played by F. Marie Abraham and Bill Irwin, who are spectacular performers mm -hmm. who, you know, who didn't have, uh, you know, the level of celebrity that Williams and Martin had. And, and during a rehearsal one day, he just abruptly said, okay, now you two, you're going to be the leads and, and Robin and Steve, you're going to play the supporting characters. And, um, uh, he did it. And I think Steve Martin in particular was quite impressed by, by what it, showed them uh all about the play and about the roles but but at the end of that exercise mike turned to um uh, steve martin and robin williams and said see it's not so easy is it um and i thought that was a great kind of democratizing moment it was it was basically a way of saying we're there are four actors on stage right now they're not ranked everybody has their part to play Everybody is a, a an equal contributor um, to making this a success. Well, you made Mike Nichols come to life uh, so incredibly well. I felt like I knew him. Uh, I was brokenhearted at the end of his story, and I, I took my time reading it because I, I didn't want it to end. I was having such a wonderful ride along the way, and I was reading it on my iPad, so I had no idea how long the book was until the <laughs> end, and I went, that that's not possible. I thought this book was about 185 pages because uh, it, it was it was such a joyride to get through a, a really remarkable piece of uh, research and craft and, and bringing Mike Nichols to life like I, I don't think anybody else could, Mark. Well, thank you so much. That, that really means the world to me. Well, I appreciate you making time for us today. Thanks so much, Mark, and uh, be well. 
You too. Thanks. Well, that is great stuff. Uh, talking about a wonderful book, the talented Mark Harris. The new book is called Mike Nichols, A Life, and uh, a well-researched and wildly entertaining read. If I said to you, 688 pages, you might go, yeah, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe as a doorstop, but no, it's great. And uh, again, it, it, it flies by as a, as a told Mark. It, and it felt like it was far too short, although he did a wonderful job of covering everything. But uh, great stuff. Mark Harris with us here on the 150th edition of Downtown, the podcast. And we can already tell you about next week. Um, because we've been looking forward to it for a while, actually holding on to this one until we get uh, close to the release of their new documentary. Ken Burns and Lynn Novick will be with us next week on the podcast to talk about their new series coming to PBS soon, all about Ernest Hemingway. So we'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance. <laughs>